This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In February 1986, a 26-year-old nurse was making her way home from dinner with friends in Sydney, Australia. No one could have predicted that she would be abducted from the street by a sadistic gang prowling for a victim. Despite witnesses contacting police straight away, there was no sign of the missing woman or the gang that had taken her. What unfolded next was one of the most infamous criminal cases in Australian law where police, the media and the public were determined to ensure that justice would be served. This episode tells the story of Anisha Cobby. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of the season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. I want to pause here before we begin to give a disclaimer and content warning that this is one of the most disturbing and gruesome cases that I have ever researched. This case contains details of physical and sexual violence, murder, attempted murder, child abuse, bestiality and animal cruelty. While I try my best to not get lost in or dwell on the details of any case, the details being the specifics of the torture, violence and humiliation inflicted on the victim. There are just some details that I have to share to adequately tell Anita's story. Please know that this crime is both heinous and brutal and will touch on a level of depravity that we seldom hear about, although unfortunately it does exist and is all too real. I will try to tell Anita's story as completely and compassionately as possible, But just know that the case we're discussing in this episode is a very difficult one. With that said, we can begin the episode. It was the 2nd of February 1986, a Sunday, late summer in the Southern Hemisphere. The sun set at 8pm. Starships We Built This City was the number one single in Australia. And Crocodile Dundee would become the highest grossing film in Australia later that year. Anita Cobby, a nurse at Sydney Hospital in central Sydney, had finished her shift at 3pm. She had met two of her longtime nursing friends, Lynn Bradshaw and Elaine Bray, for dinner at a Lebanese restaurant in Redfern. She declined Elaine's offer to stay the night at her place, as she wanted to get back to her parents' house to sleep before her next shift the following afternoon. Lynn drove her to Central Railway Station, where she took the 9.12 train to Blacktown. This is where her parents lived and where she had been staying for the past six weeks. She got off the train at Blacktown Railway Station a little before 10pm. It was dark. Once off the train, Anita attempted to call her father Gary, as was her usual routine. If it was late or dark outside, Anita could always rely on her father to collect her. 
On this particular evening, she found that someone had vandalised the public payphone at the train station and it was unusable. The taxi rank was empty and she didn't know if a car would turn up, even if she waited. This was long before the days of mobile phones and the easy communication that we now take for granted. Prior to the late 1990s, when mobile technology became increasingly prevalent, most people didn't have a way to contact friends or family to tell them that they were running late or had to cancel, or even to inform them of an emergency. Of course, most people had access to landline phones, but not every home or business had one, particularly in the 1970s and 80s. It just wasn't necessary. I have a distinct memory from the late 80s, early 90s and being one of the few homes on my street that had a landline phone installed. Neighbours would knock on the door and sit on the steps of our stairs making calls to friends and family and would slip my mother some coins for the trouble. People have always found a way to compensate for the lack of technology. We are always ready to adapt. We adapt to technology and we adapt to lack of technology. Unfortunately, the darker side to this meant that it was easier for people with nefarious intentions to do so while remaining inconspicuous. It also meant that people, particularly women and children, were far more vulnerable, as they had no way to signal that they were in danger, and no way for their loved ones to check up on them and ensure they arrived at their destination on time. Anita looked around her, took a deep breath and began walking away from the train station towards her home. It should have taken between 25 to 30 minutes. She soon found herself on Newton Road, a wide, four-laned road flanked on either side by single-storey residential properties. It was quiet at this time of night. Most people were indoors reading, watching TV, sleeping or otherwise preparing for the day ahead. As Anisha walked, she became aware of a vehicle on the road and quickly became uneasy. The car, a boxy white sedan or saloon with an exaggerated front and rear, was a H.T. Holden Kingswood. Inside the car were five men of varying ages. She couldn't have known at the time that the vehicle was stolen or that the passengers all had criminal records. The vehicle came to an abrupt stop and two of the men jumped out and grabbed her. Anita screamed and kicked her attackers in an attempt to get away from them. But there were two of them, they were too strong, and they were determined to abduct someone that night. It just so happened that that person would be Anita. Anita Lynch was born on the 2nd of November 1959 to parents Gary and Grace Lynch. Grace was known to friends and family as Peggy, and as such, that's what we refer to her throughout this episode. Gary was a graphic artist with the Royal Australian Air Force, and Peggy was a nurse. Anita had a sister, Catherine, who was five years her junior. Gary and Peggy raised their family in the outer western suburb of Blacktown, located 34 kilometres or 21 miles west of Sydney's central business district. Actress and producer Tony Collette was raised in Blacktown from the age of six, and actor and director Joel Edgerton was born and raised there. They would have been aged 13 and 12 respectively at the time of Anita Cobby's abduction. 
Tony went on to star in an award-winning 1998 Australian film called The Boys. Originally a play written by Graham Gordon, the film was directed by Rowan Woods and was inspired by Anita's story. In November 1979, the month she turned 20, Anita won the Miss Western Suburbs pageant. She'd been participating in beauty pageants for several years as a teenager. She later began to train as a nurse at Sydney Hospital, specialising in microsurgery. It was during this time that Anita met fellow nurse John Cobby, the man who would become her husband. John and Anita married on the 27th of March 1982, but by the time Anita was abducted, had separated. Sources close to the couple stated that their separation was temporary and was instigated by Anita's reluctance to settle down and have children straight away. The couple shared a dog, Lucy, and enjoyed travelling together. By early 1986, Anita had temporarily moved back in with her parents and was commuting to a nursing job in central Sydney. John had done the same and the two were in frequent contact with each other. A family had witnessed Anita's abduction. They had been inside their house when they heard a woman screaming and were alerted to a commotion outside of their home. A 13-year-old boy, his mother and younger sister watched in horror as two men dragged Anita into the waiting car. The teenager instinctively chased after the car, but he couldn't keep up and watched in vain as the vehicle sped off into the night. He immediately called the police and gave a description of what he had seen and the make and model of the car. The family were still outside, on the street, coming to terms with what they had just witnessed when their older brother and his girlfriend arrived home. Having informed their brother of what had just happened, the man got in his car in pursuit of the white Holden Kingswood. He came across a seemingly abandoned white car on Reen Road, now known as Peter Brock Drive, a 10-minute drive from where the abduction had taken place. Using a flashlight, he examined the interior of the vehicle. There was no trace of the girl or the perpetrators. It looked like the car had been abandoned and he then turned his attention to the cow paddock adjacent to the road. Using his flashlight, he examined the field section by section but couldn't see anything out of place. And don't forget this was a rural area surrounded by fields and farmland there would have been no artificial light other than his flashlight. He must have begun to question his own judgment. He hadn't seen the abduction taking place or even seen the car. Was it even this make or model? The gang could be anywhere now. He reasoned that the police would also be searching for them and decided that there was nothing else he could do to help the girl now. With that, he returned to his vehicle and headed the short distance home. I want to give you the strongest content warning here. This next section describes extreme physical and sexual violence, as well as murder. It may be distressing to hear. If you prefer not to listen, please skip ahead now. Once her attackers had her inside the vehicle, they ordered Anita to remove all of her clothes. She refused. She tried to reason with her abductors, she begged them to let her go. She told them that she was married and also menstruating in a bid to deter them from what she deduced they were planning. It didn't work. 
Instead, Anita was punched repeatedly in the face by multiple men in an attempt to subdue her. Although in immense pain, her medical training may have told her that she had a broken nose and two broken cheekbones. Either way, at this point, she would have known that she was in extreme danger. As they drove, the men tore off Anita's clothes. Two of the men raped Anita on the floor of the car. Each of the five men forced or attempted to force Anita to perform fellatio on them at different points during her ordeal, despite her fractured facial bones. They continued to take turns beating her. One of the men began rifling through her bag and found her wallet. They stole whatever cash she had on her and drove to a nearby service station to refuel, using Anita's money. After refueling, the gang stopped on a country road and pulled Anita into a ditch, where they took turns holding her down while repeatedly raping her. Soon after this, the group arrived on Marine Road and pulled up alongside a secluded cow paddock that backed onto Prospect Reservoir. It was here that one of the men sodomized her. They continuously beat Anita, raining down blows, kicking and punching her. It's probably unhelpful to try to get into the psychology of why someone would do this to another person. Not because it's not worth investigating, but because it's unlikely that we will find a satisfying answer. For most of us, this level of violence is simply unfathomable. Clearly, there was a strong sexual component to this crime for all involved. It seemed to be the primary motive. Then, there is the aspect of groupthink and a group mentality. They were all in it together, almost a sick bonding experience for the group. But the part that I find most incomprehensible is the sustained violence. The consistent and relentless violence. It was so cruel and so unnecessary. And so deliberate. She was already subdued. She couldn't defend herself or escape. The physical violence along with the sexual violence was entirely about power. It was about the perpetrators feeling powerful and important and in control in that very moment. She wasn't human to them. She wasn't anything to them. And even if she was, they would try to beat any remaining life out of her until she could barely recognise her own reflection. When they dragged Anita's limp body out of the vehicle, she was still conscious, despite what she had just endured and her significant physical injuries. A barbed wire fence stood between them and the secluded field. They didn't let this temporary obstacle hold them back. They grabbed their captive by the arms and legs and pulled her through the barbed wire, hooking her flesh on the sharp protruding metal shards as they dragged her into the long grass. This was the same long grass that they hid in while a man examined the paddock for signs of life with a flashlight. They hunkered down, close to the ground, and waited. Before long, the man had turned around and driven away. They were once again alone with their captive. The five men continued to abuse Anita physically and sexually for several more hours. When they had finished with her, they argued about what to do next. 
One of the men, the ringleader, decided that she would have to be killed to prevent her from identifying them to police. He then took out a knife and, encouraged by the rest of the group, proceeded to slit Anita's throat and watch her bleed out. Gary and Peggy Lynch certainly noticed their daughter's absence that evening, but they weren't alarmed in any way. Anita sometimes stayed late in the city, spending the night with work friends or even working late if conditions demanded it. As I touched on earlier, technology was such that it wasn't easy to keep in regular contact with friends and family. And the culture at the time meant that this also wasn't really expected of people. They would see you when they would see you. And barring exceptional circumstances, in the majority of cases, your loved ones would turn up safe and sound within a couple of hours, if not a day or two. As Gary and Peggy were soon to find out, this would be not only one of those exceptional circumstances, but would also develop into one of the most notorious crime cases in Australian history. The next day, on Monday afternoon, Gary received a phone call that sent shivers down his spine. The duty sister or nurse in charge from Sydney Hospital, essentially Anisha's supervisor, had called to ask why Anisha hadn't turned up for her 1.30pm shift. At first, Gary wasn't overly concerned. He suggested that the duty sister check with her workmates. This is when Gary was told that it had actually been Anisha's workmates who had first raised the alarm. Anisha was extremely conscientious and it was completely out of character for her to skip out on work. Upon hearing this, Gary knew that something was very wrong. He immediately called his wife Peggy at work. She hadn't heard from Anisha either. He couldn't just sit at home and wait for his daughter to turn up. He began calling all of the people and places that Anisha could have been. He called friends, family members, work colleagues and even her husband John. Every call produced a dead end. By late afternoon, Gary and Peggy were frantic with worry. They finally contacted local police who began a thorough search. Local farmer John Reen lived in a farmhouse some distance from Reen Road, a secluded lover's lane favoured by young people that the Reen family had lent their name to. On Tuesday morning, the farmer had observed some of his cows acting in an unusual manner in one of his fields. According to his statement to police, the cows appeared to be milling around an object in the boiler paddock. He named it this as this is the field where he kept his older cows known as boilers. When John Reen returned to his property later that day, he decided to investigate. The cows were still standing in a circle under a tree, obscuring his view. As he moved closer, he discovered that it wasn't an object at all on the ground, but a woman's naked and mutilated body. When police arrived, they discovered a body located approximately 100 metres or 110 yards away from the road. There was blood evidence on the barbed wire fence that separated the paddock from the road and drag marks leading to where the body had been found. Police surmised that whoever had committed this violent crime had dragged the victim through the barbed wire fence before dumping her body in the field. The victim's injuries were extensive. It was clear that her throat had been cut. 
This cut had been so deep to almost decapitate the victim. While the body didn't yet have a name, Blacktown police detectives were confident that they knew her identity. They had received an abduction report on Sunday night and Gary Lynch had reported his daughter Anita missing the previous evening. John Reen also told them that he had heard shouting and screaming coming from the paddock late on Sunday night. He didn't report the disturbance as it died down not long after it had begun. And anyway, it wasn't unusual for groups of young people to find a secluded field or nook to drink alcohol in and otherwise party far from the watchful eyes of their parents and other adults. Later that day, two police officers arrived at the Lynch home. Detective Sergeant Kennedy and Detective Constable Heskett told the already distraught parents that a body had been found that matched Anita's description. They showed Gary and Peggy a wedding ring that had been found on the body. They identified it as being very similar to the one that Anita wore and were asked to attend the morgue for formal identification of the remains. The coroner found that Anita had likely been raped repeatedly by several perpetrators. She had two broken cheekbones, a broken nose, and extensive bruising on her face, head, shoulders, breasts, legs, and thighs. They concluded that Anita had been conscious when her killer took the blade to her throat, and that it had probably taken two to three minutes for her to bleed out. In addition to this, the injury to her throat was so severe that she was almost fully decapitated. After notifying her parents, the next port of call for police was to interview Anisha's estranged husband, John Cobby. They interrogated him for three hours and 15 minutes before allowing him to leave. Speaking years later, John felt that he was treated callously by police. He asked for Anisha's ring back and a police officer, according to police, handed it to him, according to John, threw it on the table, still in the evidence bag. The ring still had Anita's blood on it. By Thursday the 6th of February, news of Anita's abduction and gruesome murder had reached the Australian public, who were appalled. The New South Wales state government posted a 50,000 Australian dollar reward for information leading to the capture of her killers. Rounded up for inflation in 2024, this would be the equivalent of 150 to 160,000 Australian dollars. That same day, Australian radio broadcaster John Laws read a leaked copy of Anita's autopsy report live on air. In it, he detailed her extensive injuries, which both shocked and further outraged the public, who were unaccustomed to hearing such explicit details of a crime. Laws was interviewed by Seven News in 2016 and recalled that his motivation in revealing previously sealed details of this crime was because he felt that the public had a right to know. He said that the knowledge that these crimes are happening but aren't being adequately reported on incited anger in the public. Meanwhile, police were closing in on their suspects. A gang of five local men with a litany of convictions between them and a history of increasingly violent crimes. On Sunday the 9th of February 1986, exactly one week after Anita's disappearance, Police reenacted Anita's last movements, 
in the hope that it would generate more leads from potential witnesses. Police Constable Debbie Wallace, who resembled Anita Cobby physically, dressed in similar clothes to the ones that Anita had last been seen wearing. She boarded the 9.12pm train from Central Station to Blacktown, just as Anita had done one week previously. Anita's police stand-in walked up and down the carriage of the train while police interviewed passengers and showed them photographs of Anita. On the 11th of February, police received an anonymous tip from the public that led them to the stolen Holden Kingswood, which brought them closer to identifying the suspects. These were natives of Blacktown and the surrounding areas. Michael Murdoch, brothers Michael, Les and Gary Murphy and John Travers, all known to authorities. According to the Wikipedia entry for Anita's murder, all five suspects had over 50 convictions between them. These included crimes such as breaking and entering, drug use, assault, rape, larceny, armed robbery, receiving stolen goods and escaping lawful custody. Writer Paul B. Kidd described the group as being, quote, a gang of spineless cowards who preyed on women and other people's property between prison terms, end quote. Michael Murdoch, aged 19, had a lengthy criminal record. Known to friends and family as Mick, he had spent much of his childhood in juvenile detention centres. He had frequently been subjected to sexual assaults while imprisoned. He and John Travers had been friends since early childhood. His first conviction had been for smoking marijuana with Travers when he was 12. The two considered themselves to be blood brothers. Some suggested that the two were more than just friends, but the duo denied this. Travers was known to openly have sex with men, both consensual and not. So if this were true, we can assume that he would have had no reason to hide it. Still, the rumours persisted. Murdoch and Travers began to prowl for victims to rape and sexually assault. At first, they selected victims from a local pool hall they frequented, and eventually they would stake out train stations and other busy public places such as parks, looking for victims to stalk and attack. They always beat and threatened their victims into silence. Travers, accompanied by Murdoch, would also attack and rape men. There's a lot to unpack here. I'm going to get into Travers' background in a few minutes. It appears that Murdoch was a willing accomplice to Travers' crimes, no matter how despicable they may have been. As Travers' crimes escalated, Murdoch was right there by his side participating and enabling them. We don't know if Murdoch would have been involved in a life of crime had he never met Travers. We also don't know if he would have escalated to sex crimes had it not been for the direction and encouragement of his best friend and blood brother, John Travers. It seems that John Travers was certainly a sexual predator. In many jurisdictions, a sex offender differs from a sexual predator. The latter is usually a repeat offender who may also use physical violence in the commission of their crimes. The fact that some of Travers' victims were men may mean that there was an element of self-loathing if he was gay or bisexual and hadn't yet come to terms with that. 
or he may simply have been an opportunistic offender seeking out anyone vulnerable to his violent streak. He may have just been looking to punish the world. Criminologist Alan Perry tells us that, quote, a psychopath like Travers doesn't see human sexuality in the normal way that people do, end quote. He says that someone like John Travers views sex as, quote, something that he can use to demonstrate his dominance of people, to exploit others, to degrade others, and it doesn't matter if the object of that is male or female. It's all the same to him. End quote. We will come back to John Travers very soon. Three of the gang that had attacked and abducted Anisha that night were siblings from the same family. Leslie, known as Les, at 22, was the youngest of the Murphy brothers. The family had nine children, two girls and seven boys, and grew up in the Erskineville area of Inner West Sydney. He had several juvenile convictions for theft and was known for having an explosive temper. He reportedly began stealing at the age of 10 and soon after became a sex worker. He frequently worked the streets including the notorious red light district around Sydney's King's Cross. He served a sentence for several rape charges but prison didn't have a rehabilitative effect on him. Instead, he became more violent and unpredictable. At the time of the attack on Anisha, Les was living with girlfriend Lisa Travers, younger sister of John Travers. Before we move on, I mentioned that Les was a sex worker. If you were listening to the timeline and details, you will know that he was 10 years old when this allegedly happened. The source material refers to him as a child prostitute, which we know doesn't actually exist. It is not a thing. It's child sexual exploitation. Referring to him as a prostitute, even a child prostitute, is not something that I want to do in this episode, nor do I want his background to forgive his later crimes, but it just gives us a little bit of insight into his background and how the path that he found himself on developed. Gary, who was 28, had a history of car theft and reportedly had a hearing impairment, although some reports suggest that it was actually a congenital heart defect and a speech impediment. Both may be true. He may have had some hearing loss which impacted his speech. He left school and began to work for a builder, with cars and stealing them was his true passion. Michael, also known as Mick, was the oldest of the Murphy family. By all accounts, the Murphy family were well acquainted with the law. By the time Michael was 12, he was regularly clashing with his parents and was sent to live with his grandparents. Here, he had little in the way of rules or boundaries, and his penchant for petty crime was allowed to develop without the supervision of adults who would hold him accountable for his actions. In the decades since the crime against Anita Cobby, many have suggested that Michael, as a career criminal, enticed his younger siblings to follow in his criminal footsteps. His younger brothers believed that he was feared and respected on the streets. And they wanted some of that supposed power and admiration for themselves. The brothers stole together, fought together, and as their crimes began to evolve and escalate, 
they began to target lone women to mug. But they weren't just content to rob these women, they also made sure to attack and beat them too. Presumably, this was part of their fun. Criminologist Alan Perry, who we heard from a moment ago, believes that the antisocial nature of the Murphys' personalities would have, quote, been developed and ingrained in them during their childhood, end quote. Eventually, the Murphy family moved further west from Erskineville to Blacktown into a housing commission home, although it's unclear specifically when this happened. As far as I can tell, this is essentially government-subsidised public housing, equivalent to local authority housing in Ireland and council housing in the UK. Within months of moving to Blacktown, the Murphy boys were well known to local police. They quickly connected with other local youth living a similar lifestyle and with a similar outlook on life and began to operate as a gang. In late 1985, Michael escaped from Silverwater Correctional Centre. He'd been serving a sentence for a total of 33 separate burglary, breaking and entering and larceny charges. At the time of Anita Cobby's murder, he'd been on the run for approximately six weeks. All three brothers had a long list of previous charges and convictions between them. I'm going to give another content warning here while I cover John Travers' background. This next section deals with animal cruelty, bestiality and extreme sexual violence. If you prefer not to hear this, please skip ahead several minutes. John Raymond Travers, aged 18, was the youngest of the group. But what he lacked in age, he made up for in sadism and an affinity for cruelty. Travers was an extremely violent individual who appeared to lack any kind of conscience for the crimes he committed. He was also the ringleader of the gang. Born in 1968 to teenage parents Sharon and Ken, Travers was the oldest of eight children. His childhood was marred by poverty and violence. The family were raised in the outer Sydney suburb of Mount Druid, a short distance from Blacktown. At the time, Mount Druid was a heavily working-class area with a high crime rate. Travers' father, Ken, a bus driver, left the family in 1981. Prior to this, the source material suggests that his father, Ken, was extremely violent with all of his children, focusing much of that violence on his oldest son. There are numerous reports of him choking John until the point of near unconsciousness and beating him with a steel pipe as punishment if he demonstrated any affection towards his siblings, particularly his sisters. Neuropsychologist Dr. Jeffrey Fox tells us that Travers' extremely abusive childhood would have led him to, quote, have a very distorted concept of morality, end quote. When he was 12 or 13, he was expelled from school after exposing himself to a teacher. By the time he was 14, John Travers was already a functioning alcoholic. He had been expelled from school and had a sporadic employment history. He relied mainly on government-assisted unemployment payments to survive. It appears that he funded his lifestyle through theft. At one stage, Travers' mother Sharon had him committed to Boys Town 
a now notorious Catholic church-run juvenile detention centre in Queensland. When Travers was home, he supported his family through crime, including stealing animals such as chickens and ducks, which he would personally butcher before cooking. I wish I didn't have to tell you this next detail. But it later emerged that a teenage Travers was sexually abusing the animals before killing them. This escalated quickly to bestiality. Witnesses have since come forward to state that on several occasions Travers obtained a live pig, goat or sheep to kill and cook. These witnesses claim that they observed him sodomize and otherwise abuse the animals before slitting their throats and roasting them on a spit. Eventually, Travers' mother became ill and was hospitalised. The Travers' siblings were split up and taken into foster care. It's not clear where John was living at the time of Anita Cobby's abduction or if he had simply aged out of the system and was living alone. It's believed that John Travers was responsible for the violent rapes of at least 12 men and women before he'd even set eyes on Anita Cobby that fateful evening. He would attack his victims alongside his gang and appeared to relish having an audience for his depravity. He was heavily tattooed, including a distinctive teardrop tattoo on his face and even had his genitalia tattooed. In summer 1985, one of his victims went to the police with a description of her attacker. She'd been raped and beaten in Toon Gabby by a gang led by a teenager with a teardrop tattoo beneath his left eye. Travers had heard that New South Wales police were looking for him and he along with three of his cronies, including Mick Murdoch, fled to Western Australia. They temporarily settled in the town of Mandurah, 60 kilometres south of Perth. Here, the gang became friendly with a 17-year-old local boy. Some reports suggest that Travers began a consensual sexual relationship with the boy, while others state that he simply hung out and socialised with the group for a short period of time. One night, Travers led his gang to the boys' home, forced their way in and violently beat and raped the boy in front of his gang. This included holding a knife to his victim's throat and kicking him while he lay on the ground after the rape. Polaroid photographs were taken. Reports vary, but some suggest that the Polaroids were taken at the time of the assault and others suggest that the Polaroids were taken during a previous consensual encounter between Travers and the boy. Both could be true. We know that Polaroid photos exist because they were allegedly shown to a witness known as Miss X, who later spoke to police about the confession. On the morning of the 22nd of February 1986, police raided a property in Wentworthville, not far from Blacktown. There, they found Travers and Murdoch naked in bed together. Police also found a bloodstained knife stuffed under a mattress. The two admitted to car theft but denied having anything to do with Anita Cobby's disappearance. They claimed that the bloodstains on the knife were from killing a sheep. In another raid, police also picked up the Murphy brothers. Les Murphy was found to have swapped out the wheels from the stolen Holden Kingswood and placed them on his own vehicle. When the Holden Kingswood was reported as stolen, its distinctive sheepskin seat covers were noted in the report. These were later found in Les Murphy's Holden station wagon. 
two of the Murphy brothers were charged with car theft and released on bail. Police tailed both brothers, hoping they would lead them to a stolen vehicle, which could contain a wealth of forensic evidence. John Travers was held in custody for questioning on a series of sex offences, including the one in Toon Gabby the previous year. He clammed up and refused to even speak about Anita Cobby. Surprisingly, Travers asked authorities if he could have a visitor. While this wasn't standard protocol, police hoped that this might offer new insight into the crime and allowed it. Travers gave them the name and number of an acquaintance, a young woman he'd previously been close with. All documentation refers to this witness as Miss X to protect her identity. Miss X was a friend and confidant of John Travers, reported in some quarters to have been his aunt. An ex-heroin addict, Miss X was terrified of John Travers and knew how violent he could be. When police contacted her, she was fully willing to tell them what she knew. Meeting in a public place, she told police about two rapes that Travers had confessed to her about. She believed that Travers thought that she really looked up to him and tried to impress her with tales of his exploits. In reality, she was terrified of him and felt that he could turn his violence on her at any moment. She agreed to bring Travers cigarettes and to report anything he told her about the crime to police. In a private meeting with Travers, he reportedly confessed to Anita Cobby's rape and murder. Another meeting between the two took place the following morning. This time, Miss X wore a recording device and caught Travers' full confession on tape, including who his accomplices were. On the tape, he tells Miss X that Anita had seen their faces. He told the group that, quote, she's got to be done, end quote. He then told Miss X that the rest of the group told him, quote, go on, Johnny, do your bit. So I just cut her, end quote. Later, Miss X would testify at trial as to what she knew, but not before being threatened by John Travers' mother, Sharon. She was eventually given a new identity and her and her family were moved to another location. When police arrested Mick Murdoch and Les Murphy, they immediately blamed Travers and said that he was both the instigator and the murderer. They, of course, minimised their own involvement with the crime. John Travers then made a full confession, individually naming each of his co-accused. Police then set out to find and arrest the remaining two Murphy brothers. Between the five men, police were able to piece together a timeline of what had happened and when. On the day of the crime, the men had been drinking in the Duneside Hotel. John Travers suggests they go on a joyride in a vehicle he had stolen the previous week, the now infamous White Holden Kingswood. They needed money for fuel and decided to steal a woman's handbag. When they saw Anita Cobby walking down Newton Road, they decided to target her. There wasn't a particular reason that they chose Anita, other than they happened upon her as she made her way home. The plan was just to steal her handbag along with any cash she may have on her. But the gang said that upon looking at her, 
Travers had decided that he wanted her, and so they snatched her from the street. The source material on this case is very detailed, based on the confessions of the perpetrators and the court records. Out of respect for Anita and her family, I'm not going to detail the specifics of her attack other than what I've already shared. Whatever you are imagining, I can tell you this case is even more bleak than that. After they had dumped Anita's body in the rain paddock, they drove to John Travers' home. He was covered in blood, which he explained away to his mother Sharon as being from a dog that had barked at them. They told her they'd killed the dog, and she didn't question it. The gang were elated. They felt a sense of exhilaration from their earlier escapades. They reportedly asked Travers how it felt to kill someone, and he said, quote, It didn't feel like nothing. I didn't feel anything at all. End quote. The group then burned all of Anita's belongings in Travers' back garden. Five days later, they drove the car to a clearing in the bush and set it on fire. Reports soon emerged that the police had charged several individuals with Anisha's murder. An angry crowd of up to 1,500 people descended on Blacktown Police Station, blocking surrounding streets. An armed tactical response group were called in in case the surging crowd began to riot. While this was happening, the media couldn't get enough of this story. Discussions on reinstating the death penalty could be heard on every form of media. A Sydney-based TV station ran a phone-in poll asking if the death penalty should be reintroduced in Australia. A shocking 95% of the 1,600 callers who participated were in favour of this resolution. The New South Wales government received tens of thousands of signatures in the form of a petition demanding reinstatement of the death penalty. Former public defender Bill Hoskins, who represented Michael Murdoch in his trial, describes the atmosphere in the community following the arrest of Anita's killers as being, quote, one of brooding malevolence, end quote. He recalls how crowds lined the streets banging on the side of the prison van carrying the accused men. During their first court appearance for the murder charges, Some members of the public carried placards calling for the death penalty. One protester even secured a dummy to a noose and hung it from a tree branch in plain view of the five accused men. It seemed that some crimes are so dark and so despicable that the public had developed a kind of bloodlust and wouldn't rest until justice had been done. On the 16th of March 1987, The trial for Travers Murdoch and the Murphy brothers began in central Sydney. Rather sensationally, just minutes before the trial was due to begin, John Travers changed his plea to guilty. He accepted full responsibility for his part in the crime. That same week before the trial had begun, Sydney's The Sun newspaper ran a front-page story on the case. In this article, they described Michael Murphy as being a, quote, unemployed prison escapee, end quote. They also detailed his previous convictions. This was deemed prejudicial against the eldest Murphy brother, and the already selected jury were dismissed. The trial began with a new jury the following week, and would last for a total of 54 days, 
On the 10th of June 1987, Michael Murdoch and Les, Gary and Michael Murphy were each found guilty of sexual assault and murder. Just as Alan Maxwell described the abduction and murder of Anita Cobby as being one of the, quote, most horrifying physical and sexual assaults, end quote. He said that this was, quote, a calculated killing done in cold blood, end quote. Before sentencing was passed, he stated that the perpetrator should be granted the same degree of mercy they bestowed on their victim. All five perpetrators who had taken Anita's life and freedom were sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. The judge in this case asked for each of the files of those convicted of this crime to be marked never to be released. Writer Jacqueline Lone recalls being a teenager when Anita Cobby's case hit the headlines. She tells us that the women of Australia took note of the case. Every single detail. It was, she tells us, every woman's, quote, greatest fear come to life, end quote. Speaking of this fear, she said, quote, the one they had in the back of their heads as they walked home in the dark with their keys stiff in their fingers like little daggers, just in case, end quote. At the time of this episode's release, John Travers, Mick Murdoch and Les and Gary Murphy remain behind bars in undisclosed locations around Australia in maximum security prisons. Michael Murphy died in February 2019 at Long Bay Jail Hospital after a long battle with cancer. He was 65. When informed of Murphy's death, John Cobby, Anita's former husband, said that he hoped that his former wife's killer's death was painful. He then said, quote, one down, four to go, end quote. Gary and Peggy Lynch channeled their grief into helping other victims' families. They set up the Homicide Victim Support Group in 1993 alongside Christine and Peter Simpson, parents of another murdered child. Ebony Simpson disappeared in August 1992 after getting off her school bus. Her body was found with her hands and feet still bound at a dam in a wildlife sanctuary. After meeting with Ebony's family, both Gary and Peggy recognised the lack of support offered to the families of murder victims and came together to create a not-for-profit organisation that is still in operation today. Gary Lynch died in 2008 at the age of 90. Peggy Lynch died in 2013 at the age of 88. A park located on Sullivan Street in Blacktown was named after Anita. It's called the Anita Cobby Reserve. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. You can also follow the podcast on social media. I'm very much looking forward to sharing the final three episodes of this season with you. As with all new projects, podcasts included, discoverability is really, really important. People can't listen if they don't know the podcast exists. You can really help out with this by sharing this episode with as many people as possible. See you next time. 